You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We have spirits made of ulu or breadfruit and also sweet potatoes, so why not tea leaf, or more specifically, the root of the plant? HPR reporter Kuwevei Hirishi here's uh, here to talk about a local brewery's plan to get it to market. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. The tea plant is perhaps best known by Hawaii residents as the source of tea leaves, as you said, right? We got the tea leaf lei, the tea leaf skirts, uh, tea leaf used to wrap low, low, but it's uh, the root of the plant that produced the island's first ever alcoholic spirit. Initial production of Okolehau took place following the introduction of distillation techniques by English seamen in the 1790s. And Okolehau was, uh, I'd say, similar to moonshine, unregulated. So there was no sort of safety guidelines as to how much you're supposed to be putting in there to get to a certain uh, alcoholic proof, right? It could have been lethal if done uh, in certain ways. So it was outlawed initially in 1818. But we do know uh, King David Kalakaua at some point did have his own distiller of Okole House. So it's been here for centuries, but um, uh, we've all heard stories. And I found this 1987 oral history interview conducted by UH Hawaiian language professor Larry Kimura, uh, where Kaupo native Makalika Rust recalls stories of Okolehau being made while she was a child in the early 1900s. So she said a lot of folks would um, make okolehau in her community. She remembers adults doing it. They'd start in January and um, come back in during Christmas to open it, the fermented okolehau, and start drinking it around the holidays. But she remembers it being um, kalua, so it'd be uh, smoked there. And then uh, it had a lot of sugar content. So all that starch turns to sugar, which is then fermented, and that's how it sort of uh, had that alcohol that we uh, call okolehau. A Big Island brewery, uh, Ola Brew, uh, has been experimenting with the Okolehau recipe for the past four years. And in that process, uh, they've began uh, renovating the former Hilo Sugar Mill, otherwise uh, recently known as the Wainaku Executive Center, into their own Okolehau processing facility. So Olabru co-founder and CEO Brett Jacobson uh, took me through the process. They'll start by sort of slow cooking the root and then smoking it with kiave or ohia to get a sort of unique kind of mezcal flavor. And that uh, produces a liquid or a wash in the distilling process that they'll then ferment. But the fun part, at least for me, was the barrel aging of the okolehau that Jacobson has in mind, which will be done on site at this old Hilo sugar mill in an old train tunnel that existed prior uh, to the highway. Jacobson explains. A lot of wineries have their uh, their, their wine tunnels and their ca- wine caves, and they spend you know millions of dollars building those. And you know when we bought this place, we were pretty excited that there was already an existing train tunnel. Um, it's also open air, so it allows the ocean breeze to come in. And through barrel aging, uh, the, the barrels actually uh, contract and extract, and in that process, they absorb uh, ocean breeze and ocean um, uh, moisture. And so that actually adds a different, unique character to the Okolehau that we're making. Um, An example is uh, there's some rum companies that actually barrel-age their rums on uh, open ocean uh, barges. And so they'll put it on a barge and sail around the world for a year just to get a unique flavor. And we have that ability to do it right here in the Hilo Bay. It's interesting. <laughs> it is. And I've got a picture of this train tunnel. Uh, anybody who's been to Wainaku Executive Center knows uh, what we're talking about. So it will be interesting to see how that process unfolds. Renovations are underway. The uh, Okolehau processing plant won't be open until next uh, summer, uh, August of 2024. Uh, but a lot of what Ola Brew has done with Okolehau or plans to do with Okolehau, according to Jacobson, is sort of modeled on the tequila industry. The tea root is actually a cousin to agave. And Jacobson says if Okolehau produced in Hawaii can compete with the tequila industry, it could become the largest agricultural commodity in Hawaii today. And just for those thinking, what 
what are we talking about? What kind of numbers are we are we trying to hit here? And Jacobson says if uh, Okolehau can reach one percent of the tequila industry, uh, the tequila market here in the U.S., that would be fifty to sixty million dollars a year worth of tea root grown uh, here in Hawaii. So massive potential. That's just one percent. So if we can get above that, you know, that's more money. And um, you know, an interesting thing about their their initiative here is they they don't want to be the only ones producing okolehau. Uh, he sees an industry popping up, much like uh, perhaps wineries, right? That community wineries think Napa, where you're going, and everybody sort of has their their little way of their uh, own brand of wine and their own experiences. They want to see that uh, pop up in Hawaii. And have, you know, uh, folks uh, making, distilling their own okolehau in their backyards or as a business. Uh, Naehalani Breelin, Olabru co-founder and president, says the whole mission for the company when they got started was to support the growth of Hawaii's agricultural uh, economy. So looking for different ways that they could source more local ingredients. We made a model um, to make hard ciders with B-grade fruits that couldn't be sold in the stores, right? Um, that would expand the revenues for local farmers. And so we opened December 15th, 2017 with that as our like North Star. We opened with ciders and beers. And then over the years, we've just continued to expand, continue to grow. Um, to date, we've purchased over $1.8 million in local ag from probably over 100 farmers. And the goal for us is always to just keep pushing that envelope and keep um, sourcing more and more local ingredients. And I remember that uh, when they first came out with, I think it was seltzers, um, it wasn't, you know, your run-of-the-mill raspberry or cherry. It was ginger and lemongrass and citrus because uh, Breland said that's what was available and uh, locally and uh, that farmers weren't able to get rid of some of that. So finding a way to, you know, make what would amount to waste in some people's eyes into a product and um, it's grown from there ever since. Well, okay, so I have to wonder, do, do we have enough tea leaf out there? Is there a certain variety, or now are the hula dancers going to be like, eek, you know? Exactly, no. <laughs> I need my skirts. You know? And that's a, good, that's a good question, you know. Uh, for the company, at least, they've uh, started leasing land from Kamehameha Schools up in North Hilo to create a 40-acre tea farm, and they've been planting, I believe it's something like 16,000, uh, several thousand plants each month to kind of bulk up that supply. But prior to that, they were sourcing from local farmers, anyone who would give them the tea root. Um, and so I think as they grow and seeing what the demand is like once Okolehau is put into bottles and, and folks are, are drinking it out in the community, perhaps that farm will get bigger. But right now they've decided to do kind of take that on themselves. But hopefully any tea farmers out there who want to get into the business can sell you well, know, what isn't so to I've them. never had uh, uh, oh, Okolehau, okay. but cool. you have? <laughs> I've tried other brands. I have not yet tried this one. I'm excited to see what they've um, come up with as much as I know. As far as I know, they have won, I think, 15 of the last 15 entries or brought in top awards uh, in last of the 15 uh, competition, spirits competitions that they've taken their Okolehau to. So I'm sure it'll be good. But what I like most about it is that it's their first ever product to be made entirely from 100 percent locally made ingredients. Awesome. All right. We'll have to see if there's a difference between red tea root and <laughs> green tea root. But we'll see. But thank you so much. Mahalo. We've been talking with HPR's Kuve Hiraishi. Check out more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Dr. Rohinton Patel in Hawaii Kai, providing dental services to seniors, adults, children, and special needs patients. Featuring full sedation and sleep dentistry anesthesia, HawaiiPacificDental.com. 
Next time on The World, the Dalai Lama turns 88. Supporters of the spiritual leader of Tibet are hoping he will live much longer than that. There's only one prayer. May his sons live thousands and thousands of years. But that's not possible, in fact. Celebrating the Dalai Lama and recognizing his mortality. Next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Editor-at-large Jessica Terrell has been exploring issues around aging and takes us out to a bond dance. Good morning. Good morning. So which bond dance did you go to? So I, I went to the very popular um, Mu'ili'ili Summerfest, you know, which is still uh, attracting crowds of thousands. But what we're kind of looking at today is that, um, you know, this this is a quintessential part of modern Hawaii life. Um, and yet uh, the the people behind the bon dances, these Japanese um, Buddhist temples, you know, have been struggling as their, uh, not all of them, but, but many are struggling as their um, members age um, and and we are kind of looking at what that means for uh, the the future of this tradition. Well, you know, when they came out with the schedule, you know, I downloaded it, but I didn't think to compare it to what it used to be, you know, before the pandemic. Yeah, before the pandemic, I checked a schedule in 2018, and there were uh, 30-something dances. Um, when I checked for this story, there were 19. A couple more have been added, so it's more like 23 on Oahu. But I've also heard um, from talking to people uh, a number of temples, smaller ones, that have canceled their dances this year, not just because of the pandemic, but because they simply didn't have enough volunteers and members to pull it off anymore. Um, folks are getting into their 80s, and you know they are looking for new ways to kind of keep this going. Well, you know, I haven't been to that Mo'ili'ili one. I've been to one in Nu'uanu, but it is a sight to see, and it's a really neat cultural event. But yeah, the the community is aging, and there are maybe not that many people out there to, you know, be the support crew and to keep this tr- tradition alive. Yeah, you know. It- this is one of those traditions that really is rooted in the Japanese community here, but has been embraced by um, all communities in Hawaii. And this sort of creating of community from different groups is one of the ways that I think some of the temple um, leaders that I talk to are seeing a future moving forward. I, there's one temple, a beautiful historic temple, the Hamakua Jodo Mission on the Big Island. Um, it was actually one of the first, I think, the first sanctioned uh, Buddhist uh, temple uh in Hawaii, and they were down to less than uh, two dozen members five years ago. And then they got on a, a younger member who's been doing a lot of outreach and has sort of expanded uh, recruitment efforts. I think one of their current board members lives in Nevada. Uh, there are other people who are getting involved, and not necessarily because they are Japanese or are Buddhist, but because they really uh, want to help perpetuate this history. And so, kind of looking for new ways to um, really support that history as a community, I think, is is a way forward for these groups. Well, you know, uh, this group is not the first one to, you know, wonder if we can keep <laughs> these uh, cultural festivals going. I know that was an issue with the Okinawans, right? And then and when they moved to the convention center, they were saying, gosh, our elderly like it better because it's air conditioned and it's level ground. You don't, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, it's, you know, hard to navigate in a, in a park. Uh, and then the Greek festival, same thing. You know, the church is saying, oh, our membership's aging, and we don't know if we're going to be able to bring back the Greek festival at McCoy Pavilion. So it's an issue that is a real challenge. It, it really is, and I think you point out all these different groups that are dealing with that, and, and that's what one of the um, Buddhist ministers that I talked to also pointed out. You know, we're seeing declines in church membership and civic engagement and volunteerism at groups, and I think at, at a certain point, we have to figure out how to really engage um, younger generations in the, 
the traditions that we want to perpetuate here. Like the Japanese Cultural Center um, has launched a, a new program fairly recently to try and mentor uh, younger people to serve on boards of organizations to start having a say as a way of really getting people involved. Um, so there's lots of people working on this, but you know it is a concern. These are cherished cultural traditions here. You know, and if I recall, your article talked about how. Yeah, there was a concern about keeping this alive way back when. So this isn't anything new. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, you see what happened in 1924. There was a newspaper article saying, you know, the popularity of bond dances are sort of dying out. And that certainly hasn't been the case. So there's no guarantee that, um, you know, the... Uh, aging of this community will be the end of this tradition. But it is time to look, I think, at how we support the groups that are carrying on um, these important celebrations that, that make our community so unique here. Yeah, because, you know, the, the roots back to the plantation days. And it's just a neat cultural event. If folks have not been, it's wonderful to get out there and support it. But, uh, yeah, thank- it's a great part of summer here. It is. It is. Uh, I hope to get a couple in before the season's over. But thank you so much, Jessica. Thanks. That was editor Jessica Terrell with today's Reality Check. Uh, read the full story at civilbeat.org. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we are brushing up on world languages. Approximately 2,000 people are Hawaiian language speakers, with 18,000 using both English and Olelo Hawaii in their homes. Hawaiian is an Austronese language that was standardized uh, in the 1820s by Hawaiian scholars and American and Tahitian missionaries. Back then, there was a, a lively Hawaiian language society with newspapers, religious writings, novels, and stories. As a written language, Alelo Hawaii uses the Roman or Latin alphabet and consists of a mere 12 letters, five vowels and seven consonants, and two diacritical marks. And while it seems the Hawaiian language has the shortest alphabet in modern existence, it actually has one more letter than the shortest alphabet in the world. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the language that only has 11, uh, an 11 letter alphabet? Hint, it's in the Pacific. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. wind up snail week today. Bishop Museum scientists recently snagged a $1.6 million grant from the National Science Institute and the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation to advance research to prevent our native snails from going extinct. HBR was there at a recent open house for the Malacology Department. Ken Hayes and Noreen Uring are all about snails and excited to take their research to another level. Uh, Ken Hayes and Noreen Young are all about snails and very excited to take their research to another level. They completed a survey of over a, th- a thousand snail sites, the largest survey of its kind ever conducted in Hawaii, which is regarded as a diversity hotspot. 
They found a number of snails that were previously thought to be extinct in the wild. Hayes says the new infusion of money will go to build on the research over the past decade with an emphasis on conservation through collaboration. Think of it as eyes in the forest, much like eyes on the reef. This grant actually is going to be incredibly impactful. So that, that I give you the context of those 10 years of grants because those were mostly trying to find out what's left, where it was, and identify it all. And now we had got, finally gotten to the point where we could start answering more profound questions that we needed to answer in order to conserve them. Like we need to know what they eat. We need to know why they live where they do. We need to know what's impacting them. And NSF traditionally gives grants for fundamental research. And then you have to go to other agencies to get money to do conservation. And NSF will tell you, like, we don't necessarily fund direct conservation action. We fund the research to do it. And then you've got to get money usually. And it's this weird disconnect that happens in science. Um, but recently, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation partnered with the National Science Foundation to offer this program that says NSF will pay for the research, Paul G. Allen Family Foundation will pay for the conservation action and the assessment of it. And so that's the money we got. So we got $1.6 from this new program with this partnership. And it's really to address those fundamental questions that we need to know about why are things disappearing and what do we need to know to save them. And so this one's really targeted at addressing um, what snails eat and how we can improve their diets in captivity so that we can build up populations to re-release back into the wild as we restore their ecosystems. And this came about because you were poking around and you were discovering live snails that people thought were extinct. Yeah, so Nor between Nori and myself, Dr. Young and myself and colleagues, over the last 10 years, we've rediscovered about 200 species. So now the list of extant species, living species now, sits just above 300. And we still think there are more out there. We still, every time we go in the field, we often find an, a new one. 10% of everything we find is new. They were in various places. The, the biggest issues were that they were in places that people don't typically go, right? Except maybe bird birders, right? People looking for rare birds, but they're up looking in with their binoculars and listening for sounds, and they weren't on the ground or poking through the trees to find these snails. And it, it took collaborations with like the Plant Extinction um, Protection Program, uh, DLNR, and other programs where they were going in the field to these remote places to look for rare plants or other things. And so we would tag along and then we would train them how to look for snails. And that's really, I mean, it's not just Dr. Young and I going places. It, we've done gone to more than a thousand sites across the islands. It's the largest um, it's the most comprehensive land snail survey ever undertaken in Hawaii. It's, it's pretty impressive. We can show you some of the data from it. It's just incredible. But really the, the power of it is, and, and that's the thematic framework for the grant we have now, is conservation through collaboration. Right? It's really, we can't be everywhere, right? And we can't go everywhere. But what we have is a really great dedicated team of researchers, conservationists, volunteers, all across the state, on every island, that are all the time going out. We've got the Sierra Club going for heist. We've got the Oahu Trail Club. We've got tons of these people. And, and they're going out. And so what we do is we train them, and we're developing snail apps so they can take photographs and send it to us. And we can go, oh, that's a rare snail. Mark the location. We'll go back and survey for it. So it's really through that sort of broad collaborative effort that we've sort of rejuvenated Hawaiian land snail research and, and really been able to put a lot of species back on the sort of conservation map, if you will. And it's really fitting then because this is the year of the snail yeah. and we can focus on what we thought <laughs> was out there and what we are learning about yeah. is really out there. And now you've got all these eyes on the forest. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's amazing. So we just we just came back from two days in the field up at the highest point on Oahu, um, Mount Ka'ala. Um, at one time, there were 36 endemic species of land snail up there. Um, there's more than 200 species of plants, hundreds and hundreds of species of insects. I mean, it's a really magical place on Oahu that's been protected for more than 30 years. We took uh, 12 interns that are part of this program up, and we've been training them in uh, snail surveys. But more importantly, just not just looking for snails, but we did these um, experimental surveys where we're looking at where are snails distributed in the habitat, trying to determine what their plant preferences are. Because they're not randomly distributed. They seem to prefer certain plant hosts to be on. And we think that's being driven by their microbiome, the plant's microbiome, because snails in Hawaii are kind of un unusual. If you go elsewhere in the world, and even our garden snails here, the pest ones, they eat plants. They damage your plants, and people don't like them. Hawaiian land snails adapted to eating microbial films that occur on the leaves of native plants. 
And so you can see them scraping there, but they're not damaging the plant. So we, our hypothesis is, is that they are highly beneficial to native ecosystems, helping farm and, and uh, take care of the forest. And we know that they're really responsible for a lot of the nutrient turnover. So they, they put uh, decaying material and fungus and all that stuff back into the soil for the plants to use. And Hawaiian plants tend to be very nutrient poor because our soils are not really high in nitrogen and other components that plants need. This is why invasive plants are so bad because they're really efficient at using the stuff up and keeping it away from our native plants. And that's why they can take over. And we think the snails were an important component of helping keep Hawaiian forest intact. So the researchers out there that are looking at, you know, saving our native plants, I mean, it, it really is, it's symbiotic. I mean, you've got to help you know, one or the other. It, it absolutely is. So for example, you know, we've got lots of people out on the landscape going, oh, we need to restore the system, restore this ecosystem on Maui. And we have to ask the question first is, what are we restoring it to, right? Are we just gonna plant ohia? Ohia, you know, spectacular, beautiful part of Hawaiian culture and uh, the Hawaiian islands, but is it the only thing we need, right? It makes up something like 70% of our forests. It's an early colonizer, but there's this beautiful understory of plants um, like Brucesia, so Cannavale, right? And Malicope, and a lot of these different understory plants. And it turns out our studies for the last, since in about 2014, we've been doing this on each of the islands, looking at this, and we found that there's two or three plants in the understory that are really critical for snails. They seem to prefer those plants across all islands and no matter what lineage of snails. So we're talking really diverse groups of snails, but they all seem to prefer these plants because I think they're all eating kind of the same things. And that's what sort of led to this grant. Part of it anyway was to look at that question, why? And so are you focusing on a particular island in a particular spot in the forest where you're trying to rejuvenate? No. So, so that's the power of this as well. I mean, this is really hard work to do. Um, as the interns, if you talk to some of them today, will tell you, we just spent you know two 12-hour days in the field, just grueling work, but really rewarding. So you can't just look at one spot or one group because the Hawaiian Islands are incredibly diverse. They're a diversity hotspot, and that means for ecosystems, for species, everything. And so we've been doing this sort of spot approach, trying to assemble the pieces together. But what we realize is like we need to take a broader approach and and connect all of these pieces. And so what we're actually doing is we're going to examine about eight sites over the next three years, a couple on Maui, a couple on Kauai, and then uh, four of them on Oahu. And they're going to be in the Waianais and in the Koalaos, but also we're going to do wet, wet forest, upper elevation wet forest, but we're also going to do these drier music forests. And we want to see if there's differences in the different types of forest and different types of ecosystems and how they differ and why. And then we're also looking at litter decomposition as well, looking at how the microbiome changes from the, the living plants to the decaying leaves on the floor. Because then we also have a whole lot of snails that live in the leaf litter, breaking down leaf litter and the fungus and stuff there. Was there a particular snail that you just got so excited about because you know you thought they didn't exist out there anymore and you came across it? I think it has to be some of the first ones we found, but I, I'd have to say the, the one we'll show, we can show you today is Kaala subrutia. It's a monotypic genus, meaning it's the only species in that genus. And this is a, 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 a circular snail about the size of a nickel, right? It's, it's sort of a spiral kind of flat, but it's got these beautiful, beautiful colors um, in its body that show through its shell. Um, and Nori, uh, Dr. Yering and I, and uh, a couple others back in 2009 found this snail while serving it again for non-natives in, in Mount Kala. And we're like, wow, I don't know what this is. And we figured out what it was. And we were like, oh my gosh, it hadn't been, it was described in 1924 and none had been reported since 1960s. And here it was. And, and so we've been monitoring it ever since. And we're doing captive rearing with it here in um, the, the labs now to try to bring the populations back up. So that's probably one of my most exciting finds is it's a really beautiful snail. We have the first photographs of it, it's babies, right? And that's the other big thing is a lot of these things, we didn't even know how they gave birth. Some lay eggs, some give live birth. And so it was really critical to start documenting that kind of information. And so you have a treasure trove of research hidden away in all these little vaults, but you know, how then do we share this with the rest of the world? 
So that's one of the great things that um, Dr. Yearing has really been spearheading here is the, the senior curator of malacology for land snails. Um, she got a, a, a few years back in 2018, we got, we got another grant from National Science Foundation really focused on collections management. And that grant really was a collaboration between us and six U.S. mainland institutions with the largest holdings of Pacific Island land snails. And so we put those together and the, the goal of that was to digitize the information associated with that and then make it publicly available. And we, we built a portal um, called the Pillsbury Portal. Um, it's Pacific Island land snail research and biodiversity inventory. But it's now online and anyone in the world can access this. And you can just type in, you can do a lot of things. You can type in like Oahu and see all the snails that have ever been recorded there that are in records. Or you can just type in a species name and find it. I mean, there's just, and now we're at the stage where we're scanning the old historical maps and the ledgers and the notebooks from researchers in the past. Um, it, it's quite an amazing treasure trove of information is that you know it's all great to sit and do all of this research and get funding to just do the research and publish it in scientific papers we've got to do that part but one of the biggest limitations to conservation is getting people to appreciate and and understand what the issues are and what we share this planet with and so part of that is doing things like having the year of Kahuli like you know we petitioned along with DLNR to get the governor declare this the year of the Kahuli so that we can raise awareness and build capacity so the open houses is part of that program is to bring the public in and share with them you know share with them what our Kuliana is right here's here's our responsibility and our privilege to take care of this and, and we have to understand it in order to take care of it. And so we're super excited to share not only the historical collections, but um, our captive rearing program as well, which has more than 11,000 snails in it. So we're proud of these snails. We are, we are. We, we're very proud of the work that everyone's been doing. I mean, it's taken an army of volunteers and, and staff and other people just super dedicated to taking care of, uh, of these, these species, but also the, the ecosystems on which we rely. Well, Ken, thank you so much, and on with your open house. No, thank you very much for joining us. And that was Ken Hayes, principal investigator on a Bishop Museum project to study Hawaii's native snails. And we've got more about snails coming up, so don't go away. on the next Fresh Air, with the Supreme Court term that just concluded tells us about how receptive the court is to the conservative movement's legal agenda and why the story of this term is more complicated than the previous term. We talk with Adam Liptak, who covers the Supreme Court for the New York Times. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Think you've got the chops to be on the air. HPR is looking for a new part-time host for our late-night music program, Bridging the Gap. Candidates should have a basic understanding of radio broadcasting, be comfortable with public speaking, perform well under pressure, and love music, of course. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. The open house at Bishop Museum last month kicked off a vote for the state snail. Actually, we should say it's plural. Each island will have an endemic snail to represent them. Noreen Uring, who Ken Hayes mentioned, is the malacology curator at Bishop Museum. She explains how you can take part in this novel election and maybe get a pack of snail trading cards to boot. So this actually started in 2019. We had a, a Kamehameha School student, a high school student, that was wanting to figure out ways to uh, show appreciation and awareness, our land snails, the importance to the environment, as well as to the Hawaiian people. And he was like, why don't we have a state snail? I'm like, I don't know. And so he drafted a resolution and it actually went through the House um, and the Senate and they were very supportive of it. However, he picked one snail 
And this snail is a spectacular and beautiful snail, but it's only endemic to Oahu, uh, Lamanella sanguinea. And so the suggestions that were told to us was, since uh, a lot of these snails are highly endemic to each of the islands, why don't each of the islands have uh, island state snail and we thought that was brilliant um, and then of course you know COVID hit and you know um, things stalled um, but now this is a year of the Kohuli Connor um, Kaliko Kalahiki that was a student so we're hoping to get this project back up but also get uh, more community involvement and we had extra time now to get uh, more information and more public outreach promotions and things like that. So this this voting website, uh, we were able to develop. And then also we are coupling with another intern's project. So Auntie Huang is an, was another intern at Bishop Museum. And he also wanted to raise awareness and appreciation. And he's a Pokemon fanatic. So he thought if we made TCG trading card game, with snail profiles that we could use um, uh, to promote donation um, and things like that. So a so, certain so amount of donation to our Hawaiian National Conservation Fund will be giving packs of these uh, snail species cards away. And so that people can trade them, they can play them. So there's a whole full-on game. Andy wrote instructions on how to play the game. And he also put in tidbits about you know where they're located, their, their distribution, their conservation status. And also the rarer they are, the more powerful the action card is. So it's really cool. And he also made invasive species cards. Um, so it's a full-on game. And we're hoping to be promoting this. And we also collaborated with Solomon Enos, an incredible artist, and he wanted to help out. So we have a special edition TCG cards. The first 18 snail species are the 18 snail island state candidate species. And he drew these really cool cartoon images of these um, snails. We put them on these cards and they're going to be special edition TCG trading cards. And you're rolling this out in July? Yes, we're hoping to get this all in July. We're going to get pre-orders so we know how much to order. And then with every donation, we'll be sending them five cards, ten cards, the whole set, uh, depending on how much they, they, um, they don't um, donate. All of these funds go straight into um, Hawaiian Landsill Research, helping with internships, helping to support students, get opportunities in science, helping with these educational outreach. Um, so everything goes towards everything that we can do to help our surviving Hawaiian land snails in Hawaii. And so if we're voting for the state snails for each island, mm -hmm. that kicks off, you've got uh, an online voting portal, mm -hmm. and you'll announce the results later this fall. Yes, yeah, so we have the second annual Kahuli Festival at Bishop Museum September 23rd, so please come here. We're trying to uh, get artists, uh, anyone who has any um, artwork that would like to promote and raise capacity and awareness for Hawaiian land snails. We're going to have an auction that can um, also raise funds for Hawaiian land snails. We're going to have researchers talking about their work. We're going to have um, storytelling, everything that we can think of for Kahuli, for our Pupu Kaneohe, our Hini Hini uh, Ula, all of our Hawaiian land snails. Well, I've just had a great time learning about Snail Spa Day <laughs> by some of your, you know, your volunteers have been sharing the story of what they're doing. Another volunteer tells me about how she has to hunt for snail eggs, the tiniest egg hunt ever. You know, but it's those kinds of stories, the people that love snails and are donating their time for the cause. Yes, um, so we have a, a great natural captive rearing here. We also partnered with the state as well as the Honolulu Zoo. We have 23 species of land snails that we're rearing in the collections here. And some of them are extinct in the wild. And some of them we estimate that will go extinct in the next 10 years if we don't ramp up our research and our understanding of how to be saving them. And this entire program is primarily run by volunteers. So if you want to help out um, and help count some snails in our, our program, then we would love to have you. We also have a lot of opportunities to have students do research with us because um, a lot of the things we, that we do are trying to monitor health. We do invasive snails also because we don't want to have in, invasive snails um, uh, impacting our forests, our streams, our ocean, or our snails too, right? Um, so we have a lot of projects that the community can definitely help us out. And you don't have to have any biology knowledge at all. We will train you. We will put your expertise or what your interests are to work in our collection so that we can help the Hawaiian land snails. That was Bishop Museum snail curator Noreen Uring explaining the election underway for the state snail of your island. And mark your calendars for the upcoming Festival of Snails to be held in September as we celebrate the year of the Kahuli. We'll have links about the election and the museum programs on the conversation page of our website later today.
And it's time now to spell out the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier, we asked you to name the language with the shortest Latin alphabet in the world. The Hawaiian language is the second shortest in the world and was nearly lost. After Hawaii was annexed by the U.S. in 1899, the Hawaiian language was banned from schools and went into rapid decline. More recently, it has made a comeback due to a growing understanding of history and culture and aided by Hawaiian language immersion schools. Today, there are approximately 2,000 Alelo Hawaii speakers and another 18,000 speak both English and Hawaiian in the home. Yet it remains on the United Nations endangered language list. Many know that it consists of uh, 12 letters, five vowels, and seven consonants, plus two diacritical marks. So what language uses the shortest alphabet in the world? The answer is Rotokas, a language that contains just 11 letters. It is spoken by less than 4,500 people on the island of Bougainville, just east of Papua New Guinea. Uh, and congrats to our winner, Kathy from Kapa'a. She's a first-time caller. She got it right. And that's our quiz for today. If you have one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Author Kaylin George's favorite bedtime stories were the ones that her mom told her about growing up on Molokai. George was born in Portland and growing up in various cities found comfort from hearing the familiar stories about her mom's lively adventures woven together with island lore of the White Lady and the Night Marchers. The Kid Time Tales became the launching pad for her children's book, Aloha Everything. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with George to talk about the whimsical book expanding Asian American Pacific Islander representation in children's literature. My mother was born on Molokai, and I was born away from the islands, but I always loved the stories that my mom would tell me when I was growing up. And I think when I was young, I may have terrorized my parents a little bit just because I never wanted to go to bed because I was always begging them for another bedtime story. <laughs> and my parents, you know, they gave me Humpty Dumpty, they gave me Cinderella, and I loved those stories, but my favorite stories were the ones my mom would tell me about how her her and her siblings and her cousins would, you know, run around on the island, how they would catch glimpses of the white lady or they would run away from the night marchers. And those were the stories that I just most vibrantly remember from my childhood. And they were always hugely inspirational to me. And I just really, I think from a young age, knew that I wanted to become a storyteller because of those stories my mom would tell me. And I did. I ended up growing up to become a screenwriter and a director for film and for commercials. And I have always loved working in that space. It's been incredible. But I always had somewhere in my heart that I would love to create children's books from the stories that my mom gave me. Because from the time that I was really young, I recognized that those stories didn't exist or didn't seem to exist very frequently in the books on my bookshelves of classrooms or of libraries. And when I was a bit older, in 2019, I saw that the CCBC, the Cooperative Children's Book Center, released a report that actually recognized for the first time for them what representation was like for Pacific Islanders in children's literature. And it revealed that Pacific Islander is the least represented group that they recognize. And every year since 2019 has been less than 0.05%. So I think I have always been in love with storytelling, but I knew that I wanted to write down some of the stories that originally inspired me. And so that was in a lot of ways kind of the creation or the inspiration for what Aloha Everything would become. And I'm really, really grateful for that experience and for that journey and for everything that my family did to make it possible. The writing mm -hmm. is one part. For children, also the imagery. Tell me about your illustrator and that collaboration. 
I knew from the beginning that the illustrations were going to be such a huge part of Aloha Everything, and it was going to be essential that we be visualizing not only tonally, but also thematically the story that I was trying to tell and the through line that I was trying to create. And so in the very beginning, I went on a very intensive search. I looked everywhere that I could think of to try to find the perfect illustrator for Aloha Everything and looked at art auctions, I looked at art galleries, I looked at everything I could find online. I called universities and asked if they had talented alumni who graduated with art degrees. I looked everywhere that I could think of and I finally came across a piece by May Waite and as soon as I saw it I was like wow this is incredible and it has exactly the feeling that would bring so much life and so much joy to the book. She currently works as a resident artisan for Louis Vuitton and she's done illustrations for the Washington Post. We've been creating this book for over three years now. It's really important that the person that you're working with also be someone that collaborates well with you, someone that partners well with you. So out of those three years, we spent about the first year and a half in what I would consider primarily a research phase. So that was when I was beginning to have conversations, beginning to ask questions. I was doing a lot of reading and a lot of researching. I was lucky that so many incredibly kind people have been so helpful helping us to shape the story. We've had conversations with the Hula Preservation Society. We've had conversations with cultural advisors, with Kumu Hula and you know asking questions and, and I think even the really special part of the process for me was having conversations with my own family because I actually through this journey learned so much about my own family about my own heritage and ancestry and myself that I had never known before which was so so special and also during that time period I was working with May to provide her with the research that she would need in order to create the illustrations we had very intensive kind of back and forth notes and communications. We would create shared documents together where we would compile information that we would later use for the illustrations. There is a scene where you see the creation of Kappa. And so we created, you know, a lot of research and a lot of reference documents talking what Kappa design looked like, what it represented, stories about Kappa design, how the process worked, what the tools and instruments looked like, so that when it came time for May to depict these illustrations, that they were as truthful as they could be while also fitting within the universe of Aloha Everything, which is a whimsical children's story that brings every aspect into the imagination of a child. When you open Aloha Everything, you feel like you're stepping into the imagination of a child, which was always super important to us, but we also wanted there to be that truthfulness. So that's like a great example. We also have pages that have voyaging, you know, depictions of the canoeing. We have many pages that have depictions of native and endemic plants and animals. So that first year and a half was really a lot of research. It was a lot of me and May talking. It was May doing sketching and we really didn't nail anything down for a period of time as we just wanted to allow the ideas to flow and to get ourselves into a position where we were freely and openly communicating with each other and putting everything out there, really putting everything out there so that one day we would be ready to make a little everything as good as we could. Hmm. So on social media, see that you've been collaborating with Hawaii Literacy. How did the relationship start? We reached out to them. We sent them an email. My mom actually grew up with the bookmobile. And so my mom grew up seeing how big of a difference it can make to children on the islands, you know, being given through the bookmobile access to books that they can take home. Studies show that children that read at home are more likely to do more reading overall and in their lives if they have access to books at home. So they do really incredible things to provide access and opportunities to kids on the islands. So I knew that that was an organization that we felt a lot of synergy with. And so we reached out to them and we asked them if it would be possible to connect with them to do readings or to do activities with kids. And they were incredible and super helpful and provided us with not only those opportunities, but also with a lot of feedback and stuff that helped us to make the project even better. And growing up on Molokai, was your mom, was she the rascal? <laughs> yes. So there was five siblings and my mom was the oldest and I'm also the oldest. So I <laughs> definitely connect with that. And from the stories, I think they were all rascals. <laughs> but when I see pictures of my mom, I'm really lucky that I have really incredible photographs of my mom growing up in the 70s. And the protagonist of Aloha Everything is 
in a lot of ways shaped by those images, actually, because we see my mom kind of, she has a mischievous look on her face <laughs> in a lot of the pictures. And we wanted the character to feel confident, to feel adventurous, to feel like a very empowered young girl character. And she was in a way partially shaped by those vintage photographs of my mom from the 70s. And yeah, I think I think my mom was probably a little bit of a rascal, but it sounds like her siblings might have been even more of rascals. So it balances out, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe just for our listeners, because, you know, we're hearing all about this book. Do you mind reading a couple passages for us to get a feel oh, for sure. the writing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let me go ahead and read something. So aloha everything. In the hush of the night, with the moon still aglow, a small baby was born, where the koa trees grow, where lehua blooms bright, where the mo'o give chase, where the ocean sprays kiss, meets the sky's close embrace. With her curls kappa soft, breath like breadfruit so sweet, this dear child evermore shared the island's heartbeat. And with time how she grew both in mind and in heart, like the honu so swift, like the he'e so smart. Yes, her spirit was fierce, every tide she would brave, with kakuina eyes keen to follow each wave. She was special indeed, but the island still knew there was much to be learned by that little girl too. While the melee rang proud, while the pahu drums rolled, men and women stepped forth, watched their stories unfold. They breathed life to the tales with each step and each song, generations of lore that the hula kept strong. And the girl she beheld, a tradition so true, from the hula she learned, from the hula she grew. So that's the first couple of pages. And how many pages in the book? There's 48 total pages if you include like the pronunciation guide and the glossary. And your protagonist, what is her name? Ano. Yeah, so in the book itself, she actually isn't named. Every time that we see her, she's referred to as the girl or the child, but that's just what May and I call her. (laughs) And that was author Kaylin George with HPR's Lillian Song. Her new Kiki book, Aloha Everything, is a reminder to share love, respect, and appreciation to everything and everyone around you. The story is brought to life with hand-painted illustrations by Mae White. We'll have links on the conversation page of our website later today. that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we have a call-in show scheduled. We'll get a snapshot of the job market. Help Wanted takes on new meaning, different from back in the day when you were a teen looking for your first summer job. Got a job story search to, a search story to share with us? Or have you had trouble filling positions in your company? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Uh, You can find The Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.